you know, God, we, we're not born with a certificate that says, you have now been born and we promise you'll have a wonderful life. It doesn't work that way, man. You got to fight for success. You got to fight for what you want to do. You got to fight to be a musician. You got to fight to keep going. But a lot of these guys just get depression. It's genetic. And they commit suicide. It broke my heart when Chris did that. And Lane and Alice in Chains and all those other bands. I just didn't get it. You know, yeah. I, I have depression. I'm bipolar. I'm up. I'm down. Some days I want to write a rock song. Up-tempo, kicking ass, just rocking. That's the mood I'm in. Then the next day, I'm feeling mopey. You know, and I might write a song like Heaven Sent. It just depends on whatever the universe gives me. But I would never kill myself. You know, I've got children and I've got my family and I just don't relate to that. But, you know, that's another story. Battle Line Podcast. By the way, if you're watching on video, if you're watching on YouTube, I know most of you guys tend to watch uh, or listen on the audio platforms. You might be wondering why I'm holding this road mic as I do the, re the reads. So I have another road mic here that I conduct the interviews on. And then when I have to use the camera, for some reason, that records in stereo only on one channel. And then this records in mono. But I'm holding this mic because at my other job for Nidus, where I work with uh, Adam Cowan, while we were setting up this microphone, which I sometimes bring to his house in uh, Long Beach, I broke the tripod. So I'm gonna have to get a new tripod for this microphone. I'll probably call Rode. And they're actually really good. They're not a sponsor of this show or anything, but they tend to like be good with replacing stuff because I've I've had issues like that before. But I like whether it's that microphone, the um, condenser microphone, or just this USB, it's a great microphone. Like I, I love the sound. Um, I don't I don't mess with any of that blue Yeti stuff. I don't I'm not a fan of that microphone at all. So yeah, I, I feel like I should be performing or something with this. There was actually a very interesting part of the interview that didn't get recorded because Don's connection I, throughout the interview was great, but then it um, stopped because he said there was like a storm there where he's at in New Mexico and he was saying there was lightning and everything. So I started singing with him when we reconnected. I was like, when the lightning strikes again and he was singing it with me and I'm, I'm like, dude, how cool is that? I got to sing when the lightning strikes again with Don Dokken. Uh this is a great interview. We cover a lot of ground, not just the new album, which we do speak about, um, but we also speak about a lot of stuff in the history of Don Dock and the history of the Sunset Strip. We get into a little bit of uh, politics because Don wanted to voice his opinion on some things going on. So we're all over the map. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this, whether you're clicking on this because you're a fan of Dockin or you're just a regular listener of Battleline Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe. Um, but before we get into this, with over 700 five-star customer reviews, Ned's Mellow Magnesium is an instant hit. And I also want to speak about Ned's uh, Brain Blend, which I absolutely love. And there's guys who are coming back with traumatic brain injury. You know, we have a lot of veterans who have served who listen to the podcast and, and they wanted to get out there. That this is actually helping guys in terms of that with a natural supplement that's not only CBD, but also is a, um, a, a nootropic. I've taken it many times, and for me, CBD is great for sleep. I get a great night's sleep every time I take it, but then I'm also taking a nootropic, so I would highly recommend Ned's Brain Blend. 
Uh, check it out on the website, but all, all, as well as Ned's uh, Mellow Magnesium. You're going to get the best deal through all their products, though, when you do it through us at helloned.com slash battleline or add the code battleline at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash battleline. Helloned.com slash battleline. Also, this show is sponsored by Bird Dogs, which I just love saying. Bird Dogs make you look good. Bird Dog stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. They fixed this issue by inventing cloud knit fabric that looks just like khaki, but stretches so you get a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement. They're the best, guys. Check it out. Go to battlelinepodcast.com slash bird dogs. You'll get a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's battlelinepodcast.com slash bird dogs for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. That's battlelinepodcast.com slash bird dogs. With that, let's get right into this interview with the legend, Don Dockin. Kansas City to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Switch is on Battleline Podcast. It is an absolute honor to have Don Dockin on from Dockin, of course. Heaven Comes Down, October 27th, the new release. I will get into it with you, but I've been a Dockin fan for so many years and I am absolutely diehard. So it's oh, thank awesome you. to have you on, Don. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, before I get into like my line of questioning and the new album, I'll tell you this. My I'm 37. So my introduction to Dockin was was definitely years later and it was of course the dream warriors video like so many other right. people it was unlike anything i'd seen at the time george lynch's amazing guitar solo the video of course very of the time but also uh just just very different from anything else out there as well even for fans of the 80s and i did get to see you know people always label is this really gonna be the last show of something i did get to see the last ever Doc and show of the original lineup when you guys played South Dakota. And I'm in New York. I flew to South Dakota just to see that at uh cool. Badlands Pawn Shop, and it was it was incredible. Oh, yeah, the Badlands con I forgot about that gig. That yeah, was, was the Japan uh, tour, and that was the only US show. Yeah, that was that was our only US show, and it was kind of weird. I know the guy that opened up Badlands Pawn 
and he actually had built a golf course and he had a shooting range and you know he's a millionaire and he was from that town and he opened up that venue with a cool stage and you know we filmed it and did everything and and then uh apparently something happened in dakota where the tax structure changed and he was getting nailed with taxes and it all went belly up the the golf course the venue it was a cool venue we had some hot rods on the floor and but uh that was chuck something i can't remember his name and so yeah that was our last show very very last show we did as as far as the original lineup for for the and u.s we, right because you had the japan the shows US. we did the japan reunion tour years later as as kind of a test you know with rich lime to see if we could get along and if everything went right and if there's the magic was still there and you know, we did four shows sold out in Tokyo and Yokohama, but honestly, the magic wasn't there. So, you know, I said, okay, we did it. And I didn't want to, they wanted to continue on with a U.S. reunion tour. And I said, no, I like I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested in why you feel the magic wasn't there because you're still regularly doing stuff with George Lynch. We know Mick Brown is no longer playing drums. So that's why that truly is the last time I'll get to see you guys. So, I mean, why wasn't the magic there? People get older, people change, people get married, have kids, whatever. I mean, just, it wasn't there, you know, not like the band I have now, which on 11, who's been the band 20 years, longer than George ever was. Yeah. And, you know, George's guitar style, in my opinion, has changed. I think he's searching for something new because he plays eccentrically when he plays with this couple songs after each show and he comes on stage for a couple songs and jams a couple times he actually had his lynch mob he reformed them and they warmed up for us so it was lynch mob and we'd play then he'd come on stage and play a couple songs but you know the magic's not there hey the magic wasn't there at in 88 after monsters of rock that's why we broke up you know, there's a lot of things. It's an old story of a lot of bands that break up. Drugs, alcohol, cocaine abuse, egos. You know, it was over, you know. And but I, you know, I suppose you guys don't don't hate each other being that you're still sharing the stage at times, you and you and George. No, we're too old for all that crap. Got you. So you're able to still work with him in some capacity, I guess, but just not to do a full tour. Yeah, we talked and we, you know, we shoot the shit. I mean, you know, I've moved out of L.A. after my whole life. I live in New Mexico now in Santa Fe. He bought a house in Taos, New Mexico. So that we have in common. And he'll send me pictures of him building a barn. He's got a cow and, you know, and I've got my estate, you know, and thousands of trees I have to look after and. So we, you know, we text once in a while about what's going on in his life, my life in New Mexico, because it's very different. You know, I live very isolated. So does he. He bought himself a hacienda outside of Taos, very private. You know, we're both kind of like that. We're both kind of reclusive. And so we talk, but, you know, that hasn't, but we're not going to get back together. I mean, Mick. You know, when Mick left the band, I remember the day he left. We were still on tour. We had two shows to go, and he just said, I can't do it anymore. I mean, he literally couldn't get out of the airplane seat. I had to put my hand out and pull him out of the seat. 
you know, because I've said for decades, the the person that has the hardest job in any rock band is a drummer. For sure. You know, and pl- especially with the way Mick played. You know, your, your knees wear out, your feet, your elbows, you tear your rotator cuffs. And I used to say to Mick, you know, don't hit so hard, man. Just play quiet, you know, softer. And he goes, I can't. I have to hit as hard as I can or I can't keep my time. So uh, it's like being a quarterback, you know. You have a short life expectancy as a quarterback. And, uh, you know, being a drummer is very, very hard. You look at Neil Peart in Rush. You know, he said, I can't play anymore, 100%. So he left the band, you know, because he felt he couldn't put out 100%. And Mick said, you know, I can play 100% every night, but it's painful. He had really bad, you know, arthritis. And like he said, he's been playing since he's 10 years old. You play drums for 50 years, it's going to take a toll on your body. So he left, he retired, he's happy. And he rides his Harley and he's just living his life, you know. Yeah, and I know for you getting on stage, I mean, you've this is all well documented, has been painful for you as well. And yet yet you're still on the road and still doing it. Yeah, I thought it was over. I mean, after I had my surgery, everybody kept saying, give it a year, give it a year, give it a year, you get your arm back. You know, it's been three years, and you see this hand's fine. You look at this hand. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's fucked. I'm seeing. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can barely move my fingers. So when that happened, I went, well, now I'm in trouble. I want to do a new record. We were halfway done, but I couldn't play guitar anymore. I couldn't play piano, bass, drums anymore. I couldn't, I can't play. And my whole arm's, you know, paralyzed. So I waited two years, didn't come back, and it's not going to come back. But we got through it, and uh, luckily we did a great record, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I want to get into it because the two songs released so far, I think, are incredible. Um, and we will get into it, but... I'd actually like to start from earlier on because I'm looking at the gold and platinum records behind you. You were speaking yeah. about living in LA for all those years. And anyone who knows Dawkins' history, you were on the scene in LA before there really was a scene of what people call the 80s hair metal or, or glam metal genre, before bands like Motley Crue on my shirt, before any of that. And you guys were also a band who actually lived there. You didn't you didn't move to LA because there wasn't that scene at the time. You guys kicked it off, and and I, in my opinion, don't get the respect when people think of those bands that started a whole scene in L.A. Yeah, most of those bands came from, like, Poison. I think they came from Ohio and... Pennsylvania, yeah, I think. We were playing the Whiskey, the Starwood uh, in 77 with Van Halen. And it was great in L.A. because it wasn't just the Whiskey or the Starwood or the Troubadour or Gazzari's. There were like 15 clubs within like a 45 minute drive and you could actually play every weekend bouncing around from San Diego to Orange County to the Valley. And I could actually almost pay my rent. So, <laughs> but Ben Halen, you know, we did a lot of shows with them at the whiskey and other clubs. And then they find they're the first one to really get the record deal. And then that first down was so brilliant. I mean, it was a genius it just took off 
And then every band in the Midwest and East Coast that we're going to LA, we're going to get a record deal. But you know what? It didn't happen, you know, because the new wave scene hit right after Ben Halen made it and after play the S Festival, all the new wave bands were coming to LA. And that's why I went to Germany in 79. I said, screw this. I'm a hard rock guy. I'm not, I'm not changing, you know. So I went to Germany in 79, did a tour, 1981 did a tour. Came back, still new wave. And then, you know, luckily, you know, Quiet Riot got their record deal. And I'd say to their credit, they were the first band ever, hard rock band to go to number one in the Billboard charts. They knocked Michael Jackson out of number one. You know, it was like Quiet Riot, Michael Jackson. He Michael Jackson on Thriller been in number one for like four months. And then uh, Quiet Riot knocked him out, you know, so... But yeah, a lot of bands came and it was kind of weird, you know. I mean, these bands were showing up and you have to have bigger hair and more Aquanet and more glam. And we weren't, we just weren't like that, you know. We were a hard rock band. So it took us a couple of years and we finally got a record deal. What was it like observing that though when you guys got signed and then Motley Crue gets signed? And as you said, the bands like Poison and Rat and well, I mean, because that was like a 10 year run of that L.A. scene just dominating rock. Yep, it was. I remember we got signed to Electra probably within six months of Motley almost also getting signed. So you had Motley Crue and Dawkins on Electra. Uh, Motley put out an EP, Too Fast for Love. Uh, Rat it put out an EP, Four or Five Songs. And they finally got a record deal on Atlantic. And then Rat came out with their video round and around. It took off. And within six months, they were playing arenas. And Quiet Riot was playing arenas. But we weren't. We were mostly just touring a lot. But I told my manager, you know, I said, you know, we're, we're becoming like uh, uh, everybody's favorite support band. We play with Priest, ACDC, you name it. We play with everybody but always not headlining, just supporting. And we had that slow climb between Tooth and Nail, our lock and key, back to the attack. And by 88, when we were playing stadiums with uh, Ben Halen, Scorpions, Metallica, Kingdom Come, we finally had gotten to that point where we could go out and headline a world tour. We had that many fans. But it was unfortunate that we were right as I say, our toes were hanging off the cliff of superstardom and we just couldn't come to terms with the band staying together because of the drugs and stuff, you know, and I never got into that scene, the cocaine scene. So it's hard when you got three guys in the back of the bus coked up for days and I'm not. So it, it was it was tough. You know, I remember so, in an interview, um, George Lynch saying in the Dream Warriors video, he was so high that th that wall that he breaks through was supposed to be made so that a baby could break through that wall and and he, he had to step over it because he was so weak at the time, which is like, it's crazy to hear the abuse that went on. Well, and also that was the uh, prop master's fault. It was supposed to be a breakaway wall, you know, with like balsa wood, you know, the wood was supposed to be balsa wood in the drywall and he should just be able to push right through it. But somebody screwed up and had real two by fours 
<laughs> on the wall. So he rammed it. You don't, you don't have to take because we didn't do it. And he tried to run through it and he couldn't. And he's like, shit. And the guy's like, yeah, you just got to run faster. And you see, he had to break through and he got stuck and he got through and he got Patricia Arquette standing there. And, but that was mostly the prop masters. They screwed up and didn't make a breakaway wall, but he got through it. Like he said, he was pretty coked up. He admits it, you know, and so was Jeff. And so was Mick. And, and, you know, it was a hard shoot, you know, because, you know, every time we take a break on a take, everybody's running off to do a line of coke. And I was like, for me, it was frustrating. Yeah, I, and I know it's like the height of debauchery because you hear the stories about them doing coke off the Robert England, Freddy Krueger glove and and stuff like that. But I always yeah. think like the the coke, the um the roided up um George Lynch of the '90s would probably be able to break through that wall, no problem. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, boy, the '90s, holy shit! I mean, I didn't recognize George. I mean, he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, so, he was ripped. He was so buffed, and I was like dude what are you doing but you know the steroid thing and you know he used to be a skinny guy you know during the 80s he was skinny and then i didn't see him for a couple of days a couple of years and then i saw him again when we got back together on the dysfunctional album he came in at the last minute the album was done i wrote it by myself i built a recording studio and i was recording my second solo album and then Jeff came back and Mick came back because they'd lost all their money, to be really honest with you, if they own it. You know, they bought mansions and I just had a little two bedroom, one bath house at the beach. You know, I didn't need a mansion. I was single and no kids, wasn't married. So they all wanted to come back in the band. And then George came back at the very last second. I mean, he actually had nothing to do with dysfunctional. He played one solo on Two Out of Fly. And when he walked in the studio, I was like, Holy crap, he looks like Killer King, you know? <laughs> I, that Alice Cooper had, remember? He was yeah. all Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, and, the thing uh, that, that's were we saying sorry? No, I was just saying when he walked in, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. I was like, man, you're ripped. <laughs> he was huge, yeah. The the he thing that always stood out to me about Dokken when you talk about the scene that was there and how you guys were kind of different is Quite honestly, the lyrics were way more versatile. The songs were sometimes way more complex. And I mean, you had songs like Kiss of Death about the AIDS epidemic or yep. uh, Will the Sunrise about war going on. And you were not the band who was just about the partying and the fire. You may have been a part of that scene because it was all out of L.A. at that same time. But I definitely think that there's something in the music and the lyrics that always separated Dokken from all the other bands that was just all about fun party lifestyle and their lyrics 24 7 yeah i mean if i look back at my 13 album history which is not as much as a lot of bands put out because i was the main lyricist i never wrote a song called girls 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 or unskinny bop bop or it just wasn't my writing i'm not knocking them you know the the girls 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 molly crew video was a killer song and you know and Unskinny bop up. I have no idea what that means. I don't think any of us do. <laughs> you'd have to ask, you'd have to ask Brett that. But it wasn't my writing style. You know, I wrote, like you said, I wrote songs like Kiss of Death about AIDS and Will the Sunrise was about the end of the world. And, you know, the apocalypse is coming and what's going to happen when we wake up tomorrow. And those are the things that I wrote about. 
And I wrote about love found and love lost, but I just wasn't into those pop choruses. It wasn't Doc, and we, we, we got stigmatized because we came from the 80s and we had long hair. And they're like, oh, yeah, Doc and hair metal band. I'm like, I hated that term. We're not a hair metal band. We turn with ACDC, Judas Priest, you know, all the heavy, heavy bands. You would never see a band like Poison opening up for ACDC. You would never see a band like Motley Crue or Poison opening up for Judas Priest. These are the bands we opened up for because we had that heavy side to us. But the fans only saw what they saw on MTV. In my dreams, it's not love, just got lucky, alone again. You know, we, the commercial songs were on MTV. So I think that kind of put us in that category that we were a hair band. But any hardcore Dawkins fan knows we were kind of schizophrenic. We had our commercial hits, and then we had our heavy, more intelligent, dark lyrics about life and apocalyptic stuff and AIDS. And I don't think any of those bands wrote songs about that. I would agree. And then of the bands you listed, I mean, you also got to tour with Metallica pre-Black Album or do shows with them, I should say, before they were a household name. Yeah, that was a tough tour because uh, they hadn't done the Black Album yet. I mean, Metallica's now the biggest band in the world. Absolutely. I just saw them at Giant Stadium and I've never seen a crowd bigger in my entire life. No, it was huge. I mean, they played the Antarctic. They can play anywhere they want. I saw the video they played the Antarctic. I was like, holy shit, out in an ice flow. And uh, that was kind of maybe the reason we broke up because of Metallica. Because when we played the stadium tour, Metallica came on stage every day with this attitude like, you know, do or die. I mean, they just gave it 100%, 110%. They were kicking ass. They were just coming out with Injustice for All, which was not my favorite Metallica album. And, you know, they hadn't done the Black album yet. This now took them into superstardom. And I would talk to the band and I say, look at Metallica. And they're opening for us. And we had the same manager. And I used to say, well, well, Cliff, I know they're opening up and they're only making half the money as us, but could you put them on after us? <laughs> because when Metallica went on and they closed the show with whatever it was, Kill Them All or something like that, we we're coming on stage doing In My Dreams. We look like the monkeys practically because we we're just a straight ahead rock and roll band. But I, I respected Metallica so much because we'd be in Texas and it'd be like 105 degrees and they'd go on at like three o'clock and it's just sweltering hot. But they went on every, every day. Metallica had this mindset that if this is our last show, we die. So be it. They gave it 110%. And we've been on the road for a year and a half. And I think we just kind of got full of ourselves, you know? I mean, we had toured with Aerosmith and, all these other bands and we weren't playing well, in my opinion, because the drugs, you know, when you're on stage in front of a hundred thousand people and I'm trying to, you know, front the band and you got all these cameras on you and big screens and the camera would go to George and during a solo and I'd look over and there's no George on stage. Where Where's George? I hear him playing, but he wasn't on stage because he was standing behind his Marshall amplifiers 
doing coke. And, you know, I begged and pleaded and said, is there any way you guys can't do drugs for 90 minutes? <laughs> and basically they said, no, you know, they were doing coke on stage. And it was really, for me, depressing. I started the band, the band's called Dawkins, and everybody was doing coke on, on stage. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And that's when the band unraveled, you know. And that actually makes me wonder, because you put out the Don Dawkins solo album following all of that. When did you decide, hey, this is my band that I created. I'm going to carry the torch. I'm going to use the name Dawkins. Well, the, you know, after we broke up, George got a job, uh, a record deal Electra's Lynch Mob. And they wanted to keep me as Dawkins. And I thought this might be a conflict of interest to have Dawkins and Lynch Mob on the same label. Somebody's going to take a hit on the promotion. So I left and went to Geffen. And I hate it when people say, oh, and you did your solo album. It wasn't a solo album. It was just going to be another Dawkins album. But the band suited. And it's a great album, I should throw out there. Great album. Come on, man. Up For Me Ashes, one of the best albums I ever did. I'm so proud of that album. I love it. And it was kind of like a superstar group. Mickey D on drums, you know, who had just left uh, King Diamond and joined me. And then he had Peter Baltrum except. He had John Norm from Europe. I discovered this kid, 18 years old, Billy White. We were a super group. And, but I go to Geffen and all of a sudden I get a lawsuit, you know, and the three of them were suing me to take my name away. And I said, well, you can't take my name away. Sue my father or my great-grandfather <laughs> or my great great Which just happens to be a great band name. Yeah, rhymes with rockin'. But I, I wasn't really worried about it. It was a very expensive, long, protracted lawsuit. But I thought, you guys can't take my name. It's my name. You can't take it away. But when we got to court, this 80-year-old senile judge goes, well, what's the difference between Don Dawkins and Dawkins? I said... There's a big difference. If I put my surname on it, people will think it's a solo album. That's why everybody calls it. No, it's just another Dawkins album. And if I would have just called it Dawkins, it would have sold four times more. But the judge, what they call it, he split the baby. Because Jeff, George, and Mick wanted to go on as Dawkins. And I said, I will fight you to the ends of the earth for you guys going on as Dawkins without me. And at the end of the day, the judge said, you guys can't use the name Dawkins. Don can't use the name Dawkins. But I can't legally keep Don from making records as Don Dawkins. And that's what happened. So it took three years. And then finally, after they all went broke from snorting all their money up their nose, they came back to me. And I said, you want me back in the band? Just sign this piece of paper that you have no rights to name Dawkins. I own the name and sign this piece of paper. Otherwise you're not coming back to the band. And they all did, you know, they all signed off. So that's when I got the name back. That and actually I, sounds similar to the guns and roses story, right? With Axel owning the yep. name guns and roses. Same thing. And when they came back in the band, then I finally got a little older and a little wiser. I immediately called the lawyer. I said, I need to trademark my name, Dawkins. I need to patent it. I need to, patent and trademark the name the logo doc and i just never thought i needed to do all that bullshit with lawyers 
I never in my wildest dreams thought the three of them would sue me for my own name and try to take it away from me. And when I got to court, I was like 98% sure that I would win, but I didn't. So I put out the album on Gap and Don Dockin. And that hurt it. it. It did, you know, 400, 500,000. But the album before had done a million and a half. But I said, Your Honor, if I have to call it Don Dockin, they're going to think of it's a solo album. And I made the point, like, you look at icons like uh, Mick Jagger. He put out solo albums. They didn't sell shit compared to the Stones. And then Mick thought, oh, I'll get David Bowie. We'll do a collaboration. It'll be two superstars, Mick Jagger and David Bowie, and they'll sell millions. And they got a, a lot of money for that record. And then they put out that single, Dancing on the Streets. Of all the songs you're going to do, that's the worst song you could ever pick. It was a lame video, a lame record, and it didn't sell shit. Even with David Bowie's name on it, you know, and they're walking down the street dancing. Come on, man. They could have wrote a brand new song. Of all the songs they're going to redo, you don't do Dancing in the Streets by the Shirelles. It's ridiculous. So I knew, and David Geffen knew, he said, you know, you got to fight for your name, Don, get your name back. But we have to put out Don Doc and it's going to hurt your record sales. And it did. So, but finally, a couple of years later, as the rest of the members were married and getting divorced and losing their houses and alimony and they pissed all their money away on Ferraris, they all wanted to come back. And I said, okay, just, but you got to sign this piece of paper that says, I own Dockin, I'm going to trade market, and it's going to be Dockin. You never try to take my name away again. And that's what happened. It's funny that I mentioned the parallel to Guns N' Roses because it sounds like the exact same thing of them reuniting. Axel still owns the name, Slash got divorced, suddenly they reunite. So yep. yeah, I, I understand with that. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying this interview with Don Dockin. We covered so much ground here. Before we continue, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, or you can just go to the website for the best deal through us here at Battleline Podcast. That's fsm.com. Use the exclusive promo code Battleline for 15% off your order. fsm.com, promo code Battleline for 15% off. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. A uh, lot more ground covered with Don Dockin. So let's get right back to that interview with the Dockin frontman legend Don Dockin. So I know that you're here, of course, to promote the new album, and I do want to talk about it. And I will say when I heard the first single, I wasn't sure what to expect because it's been quite a few years since Broken Bones came out. And yep. I know at the time you were saying Broken Bones may be the last Dockin album. 
But yep. I have to say, I was I was pleasantly surprised and impressed by what you're doing with the, with the new album. And it actually has a very unique sound to it. It, it. I don't think you're trying to sound like classic Dokken. This is this is what Dokken sounds like in 2023 with the current lineup. And man, it's just Correct. extremely catchy. And a, and a lot of work was put into those videos, I can tell. Oh, yeah. I mean... Everybody says, oh, we, you know, I had so many offers for years after we did many albums after Dysfunk. We did like Long Way Home and Shadow Life with George and he left again. Then I did Lightning Strikes again with John and Hell to Pay. And, you know, we've done six albums since back in the day. But all the labels that would approach me would say to me, we want to give you a record deal, but we want your songs to sound like tooth and nail means back the attack. And I said, well, then I'm not interested. I can't go back 30 years. I'm older. I mean, that was literally in their offer that I had to sound like tooth and nail means back the attack or in lock and key. I said, I said, guys, I was in my thirties, you know, wherever my spirit and my soul and my, my writing was, you know, the world's moved on and I have different inspiration and everything has happened. I I can't, I could write tooth and nail in one week and just regurgitate those same songs. I said, but I can't, I have to write whatever I'm inspired for. And I've told many interviewers, I said, I don't just sit down and write a song. I wait for the universe to inspire me. And it might happen at two in the morning, five in the morning, six in the afternoon and I'd run to my recording studio and I'd put down a demo and I'd write what I ever was in my head. I mean, I keep little, I used to keep micro, those micro cassette recorders. I had one on the toilet, in the living room, in my studio, in the bedroom. Uh, I don't, I don't just sit down and write a song and go, okay, the, we're going to write, you know, unskinny bop bop blows me away. <laughs> I'm assuming that poison, I'm not knocking poison. God no, yet. I know. Yeah. But I'm assuming they're talking about strippers or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to ask, my, I have to ask Brett that or, or Cece. But I said, look, I'm, I'm just going to write whatever comes into my soul and into my head. I can't tell you I'm going to write what I did 20 years ago because I'm not in that same headspace. And they would go, oh, I said, then never mind. I just go, never mind. Until I found a record company and said, just write what you want, you know, whatever. And and I think this album, you haven't heard the whole album, the whole album apparently. No, not yet. It's, it's not out like, yet. A lot of the journalists have the whole record, mostly the Europeans. Uh, they got to hook me up, man, because I'm, I'm yeah, hungry to hear got, it. I pre-ordered it on Amazon. I got the CD coming in the mail. They all have the record and they were like, oh my God, this album is classic Dawkin. I mean, you've only heard Fugitive and Gypsy yeah. and Gypsy. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to write what I write. And if it comes out grunge or techno or, or prog, whatever happens, it happens, you know? And I just wrote what I wanted to write. And it came out Every band, when you interview somebody, they say, it's our greatest record. Of the course. best record we've ever done. It's the most amazing. It's our best record. 
I'm not saying that, but when we were all done and Kevin Shirley, who's like a world famous engineer, uh, lives in Australia. We had to mail the stuff to Australia and he mixed it. And the first couple of tracks he mixed, I was very disappointed with. And I was like, Kevin, I'm not digging these mixes. He goes, well, I thought you wanted that classic 80s docking sound. I said, dude, that ship is, that ship is sailed, man. I want a punchy, aggressive, in-your-face album. And he had just finished Iron Maiden's album. And that's why I hired him. I said, I want it to sound like Iron Maiden's record. You know, big, heavy, bottom end, punchy, not slick. Lots of reverb, like uh, Def Leppard's, you know, Pyromania, which is a brilliant album, but it was very slick. And it took him four years to record it. Yeah. And I said, Kevin, just make it loud, in your face. Forget about whatever we did in the 80s. So Kevin said, okay, I'm switching gears. So we'd be on the phone back and forth because he's in Australia. I'm in New Mexico, and he's emailing me mixes like every 20 minutes. I had my phone next to my bed. I sent you a new mix. I'd have to get up, put my headphones on, and I go, email him back and go, a little more snare, a little less reverb, a little more bass, a little more cymbals. Then I go back to bed. 20 minutes later, he emailed me. Okay, sent you another mix. It was a nightmare, I mean, to mix a record for some guy in Australia. But he's Kevin Shirley. He's he's top guy in the world. And I was very grateful that he wanted to mix our record. And he said to me, when I called him, he said, I always want to mix a docking record. So the album came out punchy, amazing. It's a perfect mix. Every song, even he said, dude, I can't find any songs on this record that I would call a B song. They're all A songs. Every song in your record is an A song. I haven't heard one song in this record that's kind of a, what we call filler. And you know, from buying records from a lot of bands, I can name them, but I'm not going to, because I don't want to get thrown under the bus by Blabbermouth. <laughs> you know, a lot of bands write the hit and the video and the second song, and the rest of the songs are like, eh, eh it's all right. Eh, it's just filler. It seems like a lot of the bands would give up. They'd write their hits and maybe a second single, and the rest was all, eh, Pablum, just Pablum. And I told the guys when COVID hit that shut us down on touring, I go, well, we have the opportunity to write 25, 26 songs, narrow it down to the best 14, give it to the record company, and every song that we feel that it stands alone. Unfortunately, the record company said, we don't want 14 songs, we only want 10. And I went, you're joking, right? You only want 10? There's four four other great songs we've written. But because we're coming out on vinyl and CD, if we would have put 14 songs on the CD and only 10 on the vinyl, we're in competition with ourselves. Sure. So they ditched four songs off our record. And I wasn't happy about it, I'll be honest with you. You'd still put them out as like digital bonus tracks, though, I would assume. I told them, if you don't want to put those songs out within 12 months, give them back to me. My record contract says 10 songs. And if you don't put those bonus tracks out in the next year, I want them back 
and we have four more songs on the burner. There's eight. We'll write two more and we'll have another record. Nice. Yeah, what, what inspired you to put out this album? I know you were saying what inspired you to write these songs, but as I said, Broken Bones, it came with a DVD. I have the hard copy. And I remember you saying on there and, and saying in the press, like Broken Bones may be the last docking album. So what made you rethink that? I don't know. It was. We haven't put out a record album for 10 years. I just figured that the times have changed. Uh, if you put out a record on Monday... It's uploaded to the internet on Napster on Tuesday and everybody downloads it for free. And I'm like, what's the point of putting the record out? We can't make any money. You know, we can't do anything. Everybody downloads the records for free. And then it got worse with fucking Apple when they said, oh, pay 20 bucks a month and you can download as many songs as you want. It used to be, you know, you had to pay per song 99 cents. And when they decided to say, we're just going to let anybody download as many songs as they want, just pay your 24 bucks a month. And I said, well, then the, the bands are getting screwed. We don't get paid. You know, we're not going to get any money. So what's the point of making another record? And at that point, we had, had so many hits. I said, well, we'll just tour, guys. We'll just go on tour, play the hits. And that's the end of it. But I finally got a bug and I said, man, I've got so many songs in my head and on tape and on our hard drives. There's so many songs I'd like to record and put out. And my inspiration was we'd be on tour, like let's say the Vakken Festival four years ago. There's 50,000 people and I see 24-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, and they're all singing the lyrics. And I'm like, holy shit. And I would meet some of these fans after the show. And I said, no offense, kid, but you're 24. You weren't <laughs> born when we did these records. And they'd tell me that their parents had passed down their record collection to them. But they were too young to see Dawkins when they were 12, 13, and 14. So now it's like they've discovered us 20 years later. So I thought, well, let's make a record and let's turn turn all these fans on to new docking music. And the response has been great. I mean, the just the view count of these videos on YouTube is tremendous. Uh, you know what I wanted to ask you about? You, I've seen this in a bunch of interviews that you've done, and and you've been very open about this. That the voice of Don Dockin, you kind of said it earlier in the in the eighties, is not going to be the same voice as Dockin in twenty twenty three. What I was wondering is when you perform. Do you kick yourself for the fact that like every classic Dawkins song from the early years has these incredible high notes that, I mean, it's just not possible to hit at this age. Do you, do you yep. think like I should have probably had some songs that where I wasn't doing these gymnastics? Yeah. I mean, I was always trying to keep up with Ryan James Dio, Robert Halford, all these guys, uh, the Glenn Hughes and all these could hit these B flats above Bay, these soprano notes and I did it in the 80s. But it's kind of like, you know, your voice is like an engine in a car. You build it. It's fresh. I'm young. You, uh, you race the Indy 500 and you win. And the next year, you use the same engine and you come in third. And you use the same engine the next year and it comes in sixth. You know, your vocal, vocal cords 
have miles on them. And I, if I would have known, yeah, if I would have known I needed to maintain this alto, you know, place I used to sing these crazy high notes, I would have sang lower. (laughs) (laughs) And I've heard a million singers that I know say, if we would have known, we wouldn't have sang so high, you know, and now it's changed. But then you look at the grunge bands in the 90s, they all sang very low. Sure. They sang low, not high. They almost sang in spoken word. Probably other than Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell had some crazy high notes. He still had it. And I just think it's a crying shame that he was so talented and doing movie soundtracks and all this stuff. Why he would commit suicide after doing his first show in Detroit. It boggles my mind. If you look at all the grunge singers from Lane to Chris to everybody, they're all dead. Yeah, I don't understand this whole hang yourself overdose. I don't get it. You yeah. look at all the grunge bands that were huge in the nineties; all the singers are dead. Yeah, other than of course Smashing Pumpkins, who's still out there doing right that. and Pearl Jam. Yeah, Pearl Jam as well. Yeah, it, it, it is a shame. Pearl Jam didn't sing high. No, Smashing Pumpkins didn't sing high. Chris Cornell was one of my favorite singers. I mean, God, he had some just amazing vocals. And he had a great sound. And and when I saw that video where he played Detroit, his hometown, and said, I'll see you on tour. And yada, he's got a wife and kids. He goes back to his hotel room and hangs himself. I don't relate. Yeah, Life is short, man. And, you know, God, we, we're not born with a certificate that says, you have now been born and we promise you'll have a wonderful life. It doesn't work that way, man. You got to fight for success. You got to fight for what you want to do. You got to fight to be a musician. You got to fight to keep going. But a lot of these guys just get depression. It's genetic. And they commit suicide. It broke my heart when Chris did that. And Lane and Allison Chains and all those other bands. I just didn't get it. You know, yeah. I, I have depression. I'm bipolar. I'm up. I'm down. Some days I want to write a rock song, up-tempo, kicking ass, just rocking. That's the mood I'm in. Then the next day I'm feeling mopey, you know, and I might write a song like Heaven Sent. It just depends on whatever the universe gives me. But I would never kill myself. You know, I've got children and I've got my family and I just don't relate to that. But, you know, that's another story. Yeah. But, you know, this album, you know, oh, it's a bummer. You haven't heard the record. For me, this new record is very up-tempo, all positive lyrics. I'm not writing about love found, love lost. I'm writing about a lot of different songs. Every song is like a story, like the new video, Gypsy. You know, it's animated. I don't know if you've yes, seen it. Yes, and they did a great job on that. Yeah, that was fun. A girl drew that from Poland. Natalia, she drew it on her iPad, that cartoon. I was like, wow. But and now we're working on Is It Me or Is It You and our next video, which is all AI, all artificially generated graphics. But uh, I plan on doing a video for every song on the record. And which is incredible, too, because this isn't just you in front of a blue screen. Every video has been something of the two. Like I said, I've only seen two because that's all that's been released so far. 
but every video stands out of those two as something individual. The story is different and the uh, the imagery is very different. So I'm, I'm, as I said, blown away by both of the new songs. It would have been very easy for me to get the band, go rent a stage, put up some lights, put up our equipment, four cameras, shoot the video like we did on It's Another Day under the Document Union and just film it and edit it and put it out there. I didn't want to do that, you know? So luckily I live in Santa Fe and there's a venue here for artists called Meow Wolf. And I wanted to film there because they have all these weird, you know, look at the video. It's some weird, every scene's different. It's like yeah. weird, psychedelic. And I said, let's go do something different. And so we did, it's just, we just did Fugitive. And the record company said, that'll cost a fortune. And I said, well, it's my money. I can do what I want. So we did it. And in the end, the result is we've had over 500,000 views. Yes. In six within, right. within a pretty short time span. So you see all these videos coming out of 80s bands, 90s bands. And, you know, they have a $10,000 budget. And they just put out a video. And you see their hits, you know, 10,000, 20,000. And I thought, well, we got to do, after 10 years, we need to do something really amazing, you know? And the video came out and now it's over 550,000 videos, views in six weeks. So I think I proved my point, you know? Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that you're proving too, I mean, we're talking about the voice thing. When you go out and you see Dokken, you're seeing Don Dokken up there singing. You're seeing the whole band playing. And as you know, I know you, you're saying like you don't want to be up on blabbermouth for things, but there are a whole lot of other bands from the Dokken era still going out performing and they are playing to tape. They're they're not performing live. So, yeah, I mean, you could sound like 1984 Don Dokken if you played to a tape and I could tell it's something you refuse to do and refuse to uh, compromise your integrity as an artist. Never, never. I, funny, earlier I was online. I don't go to YouTube very often. And I was actually looking at some video about the Three Stooges, what happened to them and stuff. And I saw these videos about this guy's doing background vocals. He's lip syncing. Motley Crue has background vocals. Blackie Lawless is not singing any vocals. Well, you know, whatever. I don't use background vocals. I don't have tape because I can't sing that high. I just sing the best I can. But... You know, I'll see fans like uh, three weeks ago, we had like 7,000 people in Massachusetts. And I can see people in the front. And when I go to when I go to hit the kiss of death and that super high note and I don't do it and the fans do this with their finger, like, come on, man, go for the note. And I'm like, guys, I mean, I'm 70. <laughs> Let it go. You know, you know, I sing the best I can, but we'll never use tape and never use background vocals. If it comes to that, then we'll stop touring. Yeah, You know, I sing fine. But what I did on this new album, I sang in my comfort range. Sure. You know? Which I, I think feels the same with Broken Bones. Broken Bones was like that as well. Yeah, it's in the comfort range. I, did, I just realized I have nothing to prove. You know? I yeah. sang the high notes in the 80s. And I did 3,000 concerts you know, in my 80s heyday. 
and I can't, I can hit those notes still. I can hit them, but if I hit them, then the next day I'm pretty beat up. So yeah, if you look what just happened to Steven Tyler. They they had to cancel all the remaining Aerosmith dates for the rest yep. of the year. Yep. Steven their uh, Aerosmith's farewell tour, they just canceled the whole thing. They postponed you know? it. I'm hoping they didn't cancel. Oh, I'm it. sorry. No, no, they postponed it. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad that uh, you know, Joey Kramer, the original drummer, is not going to be in the band anymore. He's an original member. I don't know the politics behind that, but it's not my business. But you know, Stephen, I guess maybe he had vocal problems. I don't know. You know, I just concentrate on docking. You know, Stephen Tyler canceled the tour or the band canceled the tour. They'll be back. Maybe he just needs to rest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Hopefully. I mean, because they're still doing it live. They're still great. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, as we're wrapping things up here is you see the American flag behind me. I do this show usually with Chris Peranto, former Army Ranger. Um, I got mm -hmm. to meet him at the time while I was working at Sirius XM. So we do have a very, our audience, I would say, is about 50% military or law enforcement, about 50% civilians like Good. myself and yourself. You should be supporting so, them. Absolutely. So I was wondering from your perspective, man, have any guys ever deployed and said to you like, man, I was listening to uh, lightning strikes again or something when I was out there doing my job? Or do you have any stories of military guys meeting you who you helped them get the job done with your music? I have many, many pictures that were sent to me in the late 80s, early 90s of people deployed to Afghanistan, <laughs> which is a sad war. You know, people don't realize it was our longest war ever. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years, 20 years fighting the Taliban. Okay, we killed one guy, Osama bin Laden, and then we pull out. And within, what was it, three months, the Taliban took over the whole country. Yeah. So 20 years of Americans getting killed, 20 years of being there, billions of dollars are spent, and within months. Of Did I just lose you, Don? No. <laughs> Uh, uh, so if uh, Harold, our video editor, might uh, edit that together, we were singing Lightning Strikes Again together a little bit as uh, the, the power went out. And I wasn't sure if you were thinking, now I'm giving my opinions on Afghanistan and suddenly the interview disconnects, which which was not the case. So as we left off there, you were saying, yeah, 20-year war, there, there's got all these guys died and, and what for was basically the point you were making. For not. It was for not. You know, Afghanistan, we had, you know, World War One, World War Two, you know, four years, Vietnam, six years, Afghanistan, 20 years, you know, because obviously after the, the World Trade Center got hit and we're looking for one guy and I always said they'll catch him eventually. But, you know, Osama bin Laden's gonna not going to stop them and the psycho mentality of the Taliban. I was just watching news the other day and they passed a new law that if women don't wear their burqas properly, they don't think, or they know hijab on their head, their job on their head properly, they can be arrested and put in prison for 10 years if they don't have their hijab on properly. I mean, they're a pretty whacked out, fanatical Muslim uh, society that took over it just reminds us that we live in America. You know, we can wear what we want. And if a girl wants to wear a mini skirt and six inch heels and a 
bustier with her boobs popping out, that's her right. But, you know, we all know about the woman that was killed. She, they arrested her, took her to jail, and they killed her. She was 22 years old. And she had her job on, but they said it wasn't put on properly. You know, it wasn't positioned right. They killed her. I mean, this is shit that's going on in the world that's just wrong, you know? And it just blows my mind that a woman, until a couple of years ago for the Taliban took over, women could go to college, get a medical degree, be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. And now they've changed the laws that the women have to stay in the house and stay behind closed doors and don't look out. And it's all, you know, the women have to stay in the house. I mean, Jesus Christ, man. It's the year 2023. Really? So it's sad that we spent 20 years and billions of dollars to make their country free. And within, what was it, eight weeks, the Taliban just came in and took over. Yeah, you know? and that, that's so, been the that's been the same response I've gotten from plenty of special operations guys who fought there who have been on the podcast. They have the same feeling about it as you. And actually, this is why songs that you've written like Will the Sunrise are right. still relevant today. I mean, in the 80s, 88, 9, 91, when I had some downtime, I used to go on these tours and I would go to all the military bases and play like acoustic shows with a couple of my friends to play for all the wounded veterans that were coming back from these various wars. And they had arms missing and legs missing. And, you know, and we'd talk and I'd ask them about what was it like and what happened. And they got PTSD and, and I met a lot of these soldiers and they must be really pissed off that they fought for our country and fought for democracy. And at the end of the day, we pulled out and let the Taliban come in and just take over the country. They wasted their limbs and their lives. And it sucks. You know, I'm not very political, but, you know, it just sucks. And I've gone to many, many military bases. It was kind of cool. They showed me the Bradleys and the tanks. I got to go inside the tank and see all nice. this stuff and go into Bradley. And they show me how things worked. And that was cool. I got tons of pictures of me sitting with wounded veterans on their armored vehicles. And they tell me about, we don't understand why the government didn't put armored plating on the Bradleys. So if they hit an IED, you know, it's all armored on the sides, but the bomb would just come up to the floor and blow their legs up. And they, and one guy I remember told me, he said, yeah, when I'm going down a road, I used to put my helmet and sit on it. <laughs> Cause I knew if I hit an IUD, it's going to blow my ass off. It was a yeah. bad design. Bottom line, it's a bad design. Yeah. I, I echo a lot of the sentiments you're saying here. I mean, I get to work with a lot of military guys like yourself. I'm a civilian the interesting thing about doing this podcast is I do get to hear perspectives from people on all ends of, of where they stand on these wars we've been in and that type of thing. And I guess I will say some of the positives that even someone like myself didn't think about. Um, we had a guy on the show named Hamity Jassim, who is an Iraqi, 
And before America came into there, he was put into Saddam's prison at the age of, I believe, like 12 or 14, tortured um, and went on to fight with the Americans. So there are people who have positive things to say at the same point. I mean, it's fair to say, and I know you would agree on this. I mean, we did not find weapons of mass destruction. It was definitely built on a lot of things that people would agree were a lie that we went in there for. That was a lie. That was a huge yeah. lie. They're sure. digging the streets looking for, you know, weapons mastery in mil that was the president at the time because he was trying to justify the billions of dollars and the troops uh that Saddam Hussein had mapped weapons of mass destruction. He didn't have shit. You know, yeah. they never found anything. It was just a way for him. Because the generals want to go out and play war. Where do they find? Nothing. They found nothing. It was all bullshit. And that's just the way it is. And why would you build the Bradley with all of his armor plating, but the bottom of the vehicle has got a 16th of an inch of metal? So if you hit an IUD, you're going to get blown up. Yeah. I mean, who came up with that? I remember I talking to somebody. And he said, we used to take our Bradleys and go back to the base and we'd grab pieces of steel half inch and weld it underneath the vehicle, protect ourselves. I mean, what the hell? The government, you know, it is what it was, is, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would fully agree. Well, I know that the uh, with the way that the um, weather is out there, we might disconnect at any second. Yeah. So I'd like to wrap this up. It's been an honor speaking with you, though, as such a longtime fan, getting to hear you touch on such a variety of issues. Um, of course, once again, heaven comes down October 27th, yep. docin.net, at docin on X or Twitter, at docin underscore official on Instagram. Um, anything else you want to get out there? I'm very excited for the new album. Um, you know, I know you're going to hit the road in support of this album. Yeah. Uh, anything that you want your fans or fans of this podcast to know before we wrap it up? My fans that have been Dawkins fans for 40 years, I will tell them it's not just another Dawkins record. It's probably the finest record we've done since Back to the Attack. Every song is killer. It sounds good. It's got great lyrics and vocals and John Levin played some amazing souls on the record. And anybody buys a record and doesn't like it, email me to the website and I'll give them their money back. That's, 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 uh, that's how much I believe in that record. That's well said, man. That shows that you stand behind what you're putting out there. Absolutely. We don't need to get any more politics. And it's just as an American, I've had the chance of a lot of Americans that haven't gone to military bases. I've been all over the world. I've been to India. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been there. And I saw what was going on. And I get angry, you know, because you've got a bunch of 80-year-old men in Congress and the Senate, you know, making decisions, sending young people to fight a war that could be won. And now we got the Ukraine and the Russians. And I'm like, son of a bitch. If the Ukraine loses, you know Putin. He's a mass murderer. He'll just keep going into Poland, into Germany. There's a reason why the Ukraine are fighting like tooth and nail to, ah, uh, excuse the pun. Yeah, yeah, tooth and nail. To protect their country. 
You know, uh, there's a lot of millions of people that love Trump, millions of people love the other side. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. But when we have an ex-president that says he's having a bromance with Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, these are two guys that are mass murderers. And when we had a president that's trying to be their friends, it's very upsetting. And I've already said in many interviews, uh, you know, if things get worse, I'm moving to France. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you express that before. So I'm serious. But, well, yeah, we'll we'll see if um if that's the case. But man, as once again, longtime fan, really appreciate you coming on, especially through this weather that's been on and off, uh, kind of crazy here. But uh, yeah, yeah thank you so much, for Don. That, you know, with the thunder and lightning. What I will say in closing that I'm just a musician. I can only make music. And I've always believed, can you imagine the world without music? It would be a very boring world. doesn't matter what band. Can you imagine us not having any music? I'm just putting out music to make people happy, to give them a, 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 a an escape from their everyday life. And you work all day, nine to five, and you come home, and you got this and that, and you want to put on a docking record or a Motley Crue or a Motorhead album. It's an escape, and that's what music's all about, to escape. And now with docking after 40 years, and there's a lot of nostalgia involved. You know, I have so many people who say, I've heard this saying many, many, many times on tour, you were the soundtrack of my youth. That's what they say. Dawkins was the soundtrack of my youth. And that always makes me feel good. And we come to your concert still because it brings back the memories of high school and college. And when I got married, I danced to Alone Again. And when I got divorced, I played this song. And that makes me feel good. You know, as long as our music gives people some relief and some happiness, that's all that matters when it comes to being a musician. Yes. Strangely enough, Dokken is also part of the soundtrack to my high school years, but not at that time, because as I said, I'm 37. But I remember with my friend watching the Nightmare on Elm Street DVD box set and seeing that Dream Warriors video in there. So it, believe it or not, it brings me back to that time as well. And it's still something I constantly listen to. Yeah, it brings you back to that moment in time, you know. And we had a blast. I just did an interview last year with Robert England, who played Freddie, and he's doing great. He's on Broadway, and he's got a and he has a house here in Santa Fe. So we talked about that, but it was a, for me the same thing. I think about Nightmare on Elm Street, what a, how fun it was making the video, and in my dreams, and all those videos going down Sunset Boulevard on a semi truck, you know. And the cops kept pulling us over every every 10 minutes because we were playing too loud. <laughs> and we ended up with a rainbow. They're all fond memories, you know. But I still believe, I can't imagine the world without music. Be it whatever band you like. That's all for this episode of Battleline Podcast. But we're always posting new content on social media. Follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. 
That's an order. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes up every Tuesday. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, never quit.